uh, Larry's Barber College based out of Chicago, Illinois. Amazing story. Uh, came on across the interwebs and I definitely am intrigued to get into the insights of um, the mission, the driver, and also um, the business behind what he's doing, changing lives, um, doing through the world of uh, barbering and and that. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, introducing to Larry Roberts Jr. How are you, brother? Really appreciate your time. Hey, man. Hey, nice, um, nice to be on your show, Robert. Appreciate it, man. I will say for those listeners, uh, you are definitely outdressed me without a doubt. Uh, we have got probably one of the the, the world's best dress with the best lighting so far that we've we've seen. So I really appreciate the energy <laughs> and the effort coming on. Hey, it's, it's a radio show, but you've come you come and make me feel bad here with a t-shirt, man. So you've, you've started off right with the, with the dress code. Well done. Oh, thank you, man. I you know I, I try to do what I do when I can do it. <laughs> so I, I'm really interested, and I'm. A- decisions they've gone to some funky places why did you decide to use hairdressing and barb um out of the i'm not sure if the right word been uh barber training um with larry's barber college what made you decide to try and put a barber college inside a jail well, you know, I think oftentimes people are quick to uh, prejudge and stereotype people who are locked up in inside of prison. Right. And, um, you know, especially inside of church, I think a lot of us are are driven to, uh, you know, talk about it, but we're not being about it. So we pretty much stay inside of the four walls versus coming out of the four walls to, you know, help, you know, with alternatives. So approached uh, Sheriff Dart and his team about um, me coming inside of the prison. So that way, because I understand when people get out of jail, it's really difficult for them to focus on um, going to school or or trying to find a job because they have things that they need immediate access to. So I figured, uh, why not put the school inside of the jail and that way would be my best students and if i go inside the jail when they leave out of jail then they'll already be certified and then i can just do job placement in order to help with the economic development and put them straight to work so that's why i um, decided to go inside of the prisons and it's interesting anytime you've got an entrepreneurial mindset you'll see the business world differently with where the actual commercial opportunities are in a weird a weird way you've almost got a, a legitimately captive audience in more ways than one <laughs> who, are, who are there that are uh, listening and learning and, and upskilling within. What was the tipping point that made you realize that this would actually work when no one had ever done it before? Because Cook County Jail, you know, I, I haven't, I've been to Chicago and I've, um, I haven't obviously been to Cook County Jail, but why that jail in particular? Obviously, there's some local tie-in, but when no one had done it before, what was the bit that made you realize this has got legs and actually could be a thing? Um, what made me realize it is when I seen the lives that, that, that were changed behind it, right? So um, I'm big in, in um, I come up with this saying that we have to be careful that we don't allow our gift to take us someplace that our character can't handle. So with that being said, uh, what I had to incorporate into my program is mentoring, life skills, uh, mental health, substance abuse. We have a program where we help the veterans, we help the senior citizens, and 
I realized that uh, that it worked when people would get out of jail saying that, hey, now I have something to do. Now I have something to go to uh, in order to pretty much, you know, permit myself from going back to jail again, for lack of a better word. So um, that's how I knew that it worked. And people's lives are being changed when, you know, they've been out of jail for two, three, four, five years, six years based on the fact that they had my program because when they get out of jail and they go to find a job, they can't get a job based on the fact that they have a criminal background. So when they have this criminal background, of course, they're denied a job. And then what do they do? They go back to what they know to do. And that is, you know, whether it's selling drugs or uh, cracking cards or writing bad checks and, you know, um, anything that has anything to do with them surviving, you have to understand you have grown men and women who have, children they have to take care of they have uh you know wives husbands um, um parents whatever that looks like they have to be able to take care of that and you know if you're hungry some people by any means necessary especially when you don't have a support system so that's how i knew that that the program works and you know when you rewind back 30 years and you look at what you've created now when you looked at the world 30 years ago to the vision of what you would create and what you do, how did you see the world differently 30 years ago before you decided to go on this crazy path of what, what you've done? Or not crazy. I mean, it makes total sense. It's just, you know, you're the first to do it. Um, right. So rewinding 30 years with your headspace of the world to now, where, where was what was your head thinking to where you ended up? So, you know, considering the fact that I had, you know, my mom and my dad, I had a two-parent household. Um uh, Christians. So I come up in church and, you know, I worked in my my dad's restaurants. You know, my dad is my hero. So, you know, I learned everything from my dad and just having great parents with good upbringing, you know, having my dad have me work 30, 40, 50, 60 hours in a restaurant every week and didn't pay me, you know, which, you know, I was really upset about that. He didn't pay me, but, <laughs> but he taught me to sweat equity and and getting up, going to work every day. And I started that out pretty early. And one of the things I realized then from now is, is every everyone don't have that opportunity with the two parent household. Everybody don't have the opportunity to have, you know, a dad that they can call a, their hero versus, you know, a young man who, you know, don't have a father in their life. And they don't they don't know, you know, which way to go and how to go there and and who to talk to and who to turn to. And I had that. So, you know, over time, it taught me not to be judgmental. It taught me to be compassionate. It taught me to be more empathetic and, you know, helping somebody to have an alternative to what they might have been used to because um, they may not have had the grace that I had, you know, in order to be able to turn out. You know, I, I don't think I turned out too bad. Uh, what you think, Robert? <laughs> so. it's, well, that was actually going to lead into the next one. The work that you do with Larry's Barber, um, Barber School it's not uh, paid for. It's not. It's not funded. It's it's self funded. It's free. Your time is sort of given there. So, what's the commercial model? Obviously, you've got the is it the Data Foundation which sits behind it. Is that uh, yes. right? Thanks. So talk, talk me through Absolutely. the. Um, me through the commercial model of how you decide to set this thing up because in your head clearly there's a rollout plan of how this is kind of either steamroll or license or expand out from a strategic thing when you looked at setting up 
um, setting up the business to obviously go directly into community to help. How did you structure it in your head commercially that it would actually make sense for the time and the output and also the input that you'd have to do into it? Because I think the model of whatever you've kind of come up with, um, it would be intriguing to a lot of different um, listeners to be able to hear with some insights of how they can potentially structure um, the sort of business layout looking at the um, ecosystem at the moment. Yeah, so for me, um, I don't sleep well at night. <laughs> you probably could imagine uh, why. So I don't sleep well at night because, you know, I'm a visionary. My mind do not shut off. So I I may get about five hours in, so to speak. But um, I'm always thinking and I'm all like as to what's next. Right. So with that, you know, I'm proactive. Uh, you know, I'm like 22 states with my master license because of where I want to go, what I eventually want to do, the schools I want to open up in other states, the shops that I want to open up in other states, so to speak. And on top of that, you know, I figured, OK, well, I don't want someone to come knocking or someone someone to be at my door with opportunity and I'm not prepared. Right. So what I start setting up is all of my corporations. I set set up the LLC for, you know, years ago when I would eventually have my housing, I set up a non for profit you know, 10 years ago. Um, so that way, you know, I can incorporate inside of my curriculum in my schools, the mentoring and then the life skills piece, because I understand that you have to go through in order to get to, but how you deal with what you go through determines how you come out. So these are some of the sayings that I always say, because it makes sense. So I figured why not develop a non-for-profit so that way I could eventually, you know, help on on that end with going inside of the penal institutions, with going inside of juvenile, the juvenile um, Department of Justice in order to help the youth. So that way I can kind of intervene, if you will, and catch them, you know, while they're young. So that way they won't make it to the adult status as far as getting locked up in the county jails or, you know, the, the, the state uh, penitentiary, so to speak. So basically, um, I was just proactive in setting all of these things up. And now, you know, voila, you know, it comes to fruition with me being able to have dormitory housing, with me being being able to be in, you know, the penal institutions and things to that degree. And, you know, tuition cost is $15,558 per student. I've been in Cook County Jail now for over 10 years, close to 11 years. And I've been in the juvenile justice centers uh, now for a year, going on two years. And I've never gotten paid to be there. Uh, it's hard. It, it's very difficult because you know, for me, I want it to be um, a circle. I don't want it to be where, you know, they they start school in jail and then when they get out, okay, now what am I gonna do? Because some people get out and don't finish. You know, I go to court for my students. So in other words, I go stand before the judge to tell the judge, you know, why it would be a good idea to give them a second chance. And if you let them out of jail, judge, you know, I guarantee you there's something that he can do. But when they get out, you know, I have to find money in order to help transportation. So I bought shuttle buses and vans. You know, I have to find money to help them with housing. So now I have dormitory housing to help prevent, you know, homelessness. And then also, you know, to bring them out the environments that they're in, you know, that they were getting in trouble in, you know, in hopes that, man, let me help get them in another environment. So that way they can have a more positive environment to be in um, money for tools, implements and equipment. So I have to buy them clippers and all of their tools and things, and uniforms, things that they need you know, once they get out of jail. So it's kind of like one big circle. And I didn't want it to end, you know, in jail, but I want them to be able to get out and have the support system they need as well. So that's why I developed data. So that way, in hopes of, you know, being able to get donations and, you know, grants and all of that stuff in order to be able to see this program all the way through 
versus it just stopping and telling them basically, man, I don't know what you're going to do after this. And that's not that's not the case. So with the men and the women who's been in my program inside the penal institution, when they get out of jail, we definitely help them. I think it's really smart because you're not thinking of it as a campaign, which a, a Coca-Cola or someone will come through and they drop and then they bail. It's consistency and you're essentially creating a fully integrated ecosystem. So it's the education and you get the transition, then you get the support services around it. So you're kind of building a whole, and that was, I guess, where I was trying to get to. You know, if you look at brands like Apple with the way they integrate hardware and software through their whole ecosystem of user experience in the exact right. same way, you've got the education on one piece and they transition out and then, you know, that leads into the housing and then to the transportation, to the logistics, to the, the the sort of physical stuff. So on a practical level, um, who pays, where does the money flow come from? Is it the foundation that raises funds that then funds the the school and the thing? Do the students obviously then pay? Is it a debt piece with zero zero interest? What's the, what's the commercial model behind keeping it all running as in a fully, you know, you talk about a full circle thing. What's the commercial model behind it? Uh, can I be quite frank and honest with you, um, Robit? Uh, data has yet to really raise any money like that uh, because um, I, I believe I probably haven't had the right platforms or the right situations, you know, which I believe is coming up soon in order to be able to raise the money I need in order to support this. So my for profit, which is LSC Enterprises Inc., my for profit. Um, actually support and LBC properties, LLC, those are my other corporations. Um, they support data foundation because I'm, 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 I'm married to making sure that I create alternatives and help make a difference. And these, you know, young men, and in some cases, older men and women lives. So, um, that's where the funds come from. So I pay for it out of my pocket. I make the sacrifices that need, that, that need to be made in order to help, you know, to get these people, you know, off the streets and, and get them working and help the economic development and if you know people would tap in you know um i think that it would be just that much more better i mean good good on you so and that was the the other part i was trying to figure out okay so if you've got you know your other corporations essentially you've got um the charity which sits underneath which your own for profit is then funding it off your own dime but then obviously it's set up sort of separately but then that whole ecosystem so when you think about the um the impact you're starting to have now is there already a kind of an alumni effect starting to happen with those that come through Larry's Barber School that then they get out, they connect with each other, they then try and keep ties back to it. Is there a, you know, in colleges, there, there's always a very big alumni effect of, I went to this college and I did this sort of thing. But more so than that, it's a it's a place of unity and a spot that they all went to. They had experiences there, they had moments, they had momentum and friendships and relationships. Is that a thing which you're starting to see now with, with support networks of those that, that came up through the school that are now transitioning out? How is the relationships of those that have in it to those out? And how does that sort of the, um, I guess, the connection piece of the community of, of what you're actually building over the long term? Have you started to see that um, take place now? Or how's that sort of how's that sort of working with those that have come before? So, so yeah. So, you know, with our school, we do like the big graduation thing where, you know, they wear caps and gowns and we have a big ceremony with the whole music, just like a regular, you know, university uh, graduation, basically. And and we make sure, you know, we're obligated because we do have, you know, title. For we're obligated to do uh, uh, job placement, so to speak, we're obligated to do job placement. And, you know, we keep a connection with the people who, you know, have come and gone 
in order to make sure, hey, they can come back because some of these people are shop owners. So they end up needing people to work in the inside of their shops. So they come back, they visit. Uh, I have a lot of other things. You know, I have a reality show that that my, I, I believe is going to get picked up. So, you know, it's things like that, that we go back and, you know, we get people or they come in and they want to be a part of it. So I tell my students all the time, you know, I'm not doing this for me, you know, because I've been cutting hair for a, an awful long time, you know, and, um, you know, I'm that guy who four o'clock in the morning, I'm cutting hair until 10 o'clock at night, you know, not e not eating until I get off work at 10 o'clock at night. Sun up to sundown basically is how I did it. You know, I used to cut between 25 and 38 heads every day. The most heads I ever cut in one day, you know, was 48 heads. And and I know that, you know, everybody, everybody's not built like that, you know. Um, so with that being said, I've kind of been there, done it, but still doing it. And I, I feel like everything that I'm doing right now is for is for the community. It's for us as a whole. So to answer your question, I kind of took the long way around that. But to answer your question, it's kind of one of them things where. I have a lot of stuff going on to make them want to come back, to make them gravitate to me. And I'm not that person who, you know, I'm not trying to be on this mountain, you know, unreachable. I'm, I'm not that guy at all. You know, I'm no different than nobody else. I just feel like God just blessed me to be in a position and I'm going to be a good steward over it and continue to make sure, you know, I do right because a lot of people destiny is connected and tied to me. So I have to do what I'm supposed to do in order to make sure that, you know, people don't fall by the wayside because I didn't do my job and my due diligence. You, you mentioned the word destiny. When you think about, you know, you, you grew up with with religion. Your dad was your hero. You're now creating this ecosystem of change for um, for those that are, have, you know, have made bad decisions. When you, 30 years ago, you saw the world a certain way. You've got a vision. You were saying, you know, you're, you're licensed in 22 states. You've got an ecosystem with how this could roll out. Fast forward 30 years, what does this thing look like in your head? How does this play out? You know, you'll still be rocking around, you know, maybe only cutting maybe five heads a day, maybe not the 50 or whatever. But like, talk me through where you see this thing going in the next 30. Well, you know, I actually I, I don't cut hair full time anymore because I don't have the time to, you know, I'm I'm, you know, with this hair care industry, I feel like, you know, I, I humbly say, you know, I'm kind of one of them guys who I've helped take it up to the next level. You know, I don't know if you know, do you know what the red, white and blue barber pole stand for? Um, Robert? Originally. Originally, wasn't it doctors? It's one of the first professions. Yeah. There was like You're so kind smart, of smart robot. Oh my god! Yes, <laughs> my wife was a nurse. My wife was a okay. nurse. So okay, I, I but a little bit. I don't know as much, but I don't know the. I don't know them all, but I know one of them. I think was a. It, it, give me the one okay. I want again. Go for it. I got you. I got you. I, let let, okay. let me save you. I, I let, let me save you. So the red stand for blood. The white is for bandages. The blue is for veins and the ball on the bottom is called a bassin. So we did minor surgeries back in the day. So the bassin was for bloodletting. So it was later on in the 1800s when they separated the professions and they made a doctor a doctor, a dentist a dentist, and our professional name is a tonsoral artist. So that's the professional name for a barber. So with that being said, you know, um, if you don't have a license, you literally can get, you can get arrested. It can be, it will be considered a misdemeanor, right? So what we do is very, very important. This is a $300 billion, if not more, industry. And I feel like in the direction that I'm going, even, even with having my own, you know, green screen studio, a media room, so to speak, you know, I mean, don't, no barber cosmetology schools have that, you know, dormitory housing, no barber school have dormitory housing, uh, shuttle buses and vans, 
a barber school don't have shuttle buses and vans. You know what I'm saying? So it's not me trying to outdo anybody or trying to be better than anybody, but it's me just raising the bar. A lot of people think what we do, they're like, ah, that's not a real job. But the reason they think that is because of our postures, our postures inside of the barbershop. What does that look like? Posture is what type of music do you play inside of your barbershop or your salon? Do you play music that's that's degrading to women or men? Do you play music that's that's so hype until it makes somebody want to leave out your barbershop and go shoot and kill somebody? Um, you know, what is your language like? What is your uniformity like? Do you have people standing in front of your shop that make people afraid to come and patronize your shop? You know, so all of these things have everything to do with. And that, there goes that gift and character again. We have to be careful that we don't allow our gift to take us someplace that our character can't handle because we service everybody. You know, we are economy proof. We service doctors, lawyers, pastors, kids, men, women. Uh, you you name it. People are going to always need our services. So where do I see myself, you know, in the years to come? I see myself, man, just continuing to create the legacies that's needed in order to make sure that, you know, people look at us and deem us important, you know, versus saying, ah, that's non-essential, which we are very essential. You know, we teach about infection, disinfection, um, uh, uh, sanitation, all of these things. Uh, you know, it's very, very important to, you know, we can be responsible for people's death inside of our chair. That's why that barber pole is so important. And what we learn in our books is so important because we have to learn about anatomy and physiology, bacteriology, electricity and light therapy. We have to learn about the, the skull, uh, the cranium and a occipital and a temporal. Like it's very, very important. HIV. We have to learn about malaria, hepatitis. So what we do is very, very important. So for people to hold that license, you know, it's crucial. So if I can help these young men and women inside of these penal institutions to be able to obtain their licenses and to feel better about themselves and feel like they can write their own ticket, man, they can make six figures. Easy, easy. They can make six figures. Mm -hmm. So that's why I want to be in the years to come and have shops and schools all over the world. That's why I proactively set myself up with licensing in other states so that way I can be prepared when opportunity comes. To roll it out. I get it. You, you yes, mentioned sir. the word character before. Um, how do you integrate character into commerce? You know, you talked about, you know, I think especially when it comes to, um, oh, sorry, pretty echo. Sorry, something just happened. Um, how do you integrate character into commerce? Character into commerce? Yeah. So basically, character into commerce, I believe that you have to and and it's funny because i just posted this and i think this is very important but you have to give your money instruction right C can you hear me Robert? yeah I got you. Got you. yeah, yeah. It's, okay i'm sorry it's okay i thought yeah. i lost you no, no. okay no, no, we're so, yeah yeah so you have to give your you have to give your money instruction in order what to do what what does that mean Basically, what that means is, is, you know, I tell my students in orientation, don't come to don't come to this barber school focused on being the best barber. I said, because I've been cutting for 34 years and excuse my expression, I say, but I'm a dog with the clippers. <laughs> so in other words, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm very good. You know, I love what I do. First of all, I love what I do and I understand hair. You know, I feel like there's no type of hair that I can't cut. Um, I'm just good at what I do. That's just bottom line. So with that being said, if you're just starting barber school, 
in the, in the 10, 11, 12, 13 month time frame, I'm sorry, but you're not going to you're not going to get where I am in that time frame, not even in five years as it relates to skills. You know, you, you may start inching up close, but nevertheless, I tell them focus on succeeding. What does that mean? Learn how to write a resume, knowing how to do a business plan, learning how to incorporate yourself, you know, knowing how to pay your taxes, setting yourself up credit. All of these things are important as it relates to, you know, the commerce aspect of it, because if you don't give the money instruction, then, you know, it's going to run away from you. You know, um, funny story is, is that I made so much money when I was 18 years old. When I was 18 years old, haircuts were only $10. I made between $1,500 and, and maybe $2,000 a week at 18, 19 years old. So what did I do with the money? What do you think I did with the money, Robert? Ball out. A while, huh? Man, oh, wow. yeah, yeah, I, I, I ain't making rain so much like that. You know what I'm saying? I ain't had no singles, if you will. But, but hey, I changed. The, I tell people I changed the rim. I had a portal blazer. I changed the rims on my truck like they were underwear. You know, I put sounds in there. I had I lowered it to the ground. I lifted it back up. I had a Batman wing on there. I tinted the windows. I untinted the windows. You know, I went shopping all the time. Had alligator shoes, suits made. Like man, I did. It was ridiculous. I even went to try oh, and buy. You, you had you had alligator shoes at 18 years old man alligators yep i was having suits made 18 years old gators i had the orange gators i had the burgundy gators the lime green gators i mean man that's what i did with my money man so live the dream I get it. you know absolutely yep. you know and then, but then i'm on the phone making payment arrangements like hey uh, uh can, can you give me another week to pay my light bill you know at the shop so i didn't know no better you know what i'm saying so you know i i Commerce and, and, and character is very important. That's where that gift comes in at because you can have that gift, but if your character can't handle it, that means being on time, you know, obeying rules and regulations, uh, just all of that stuff. It just makes sense, you know. And I feel like had I gotten in my early 20s, what I'm starting to see now in my 40s, I probably would have goofed it up in my 20s because I didn't know how to handle it. You know what I'm saying? I thought I knew how to handle it, but I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't. I really didn't. Yeah. I've got this saying, you know, currency reveals character. You, you you throw throw a whole bunch of cash in the mix at a certain age and you'll see how people roll, especially within business, you know, will Absolutely. someone screw a relationship over for 10 grand? Will they, will they not? And I always thought about time a little bit differently. You know, someone screwed me out of a deal for um, 20 grand. It was someone close to me. It was a friend that, that made some bad sort of business decisions and uh, I thought of it differently. I thought, well, hey, look, if I'm, you know, 30 years old, I'll be in business till I'm 70. That's 40 years, 20 grand. That's only 500 a year. That's only 10 bucks a week. That's the cost of two coffees. So he burned a bridge <laughs> for the rest of my life for two coffees. And I thought of right. it, and someone's like, no, you need to sue him. You need to do this shit, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, man, two coffees. Yeah, it's a different conversation. There's yeah, levels to it. Right? And I think you think of time differently. But I wanted to rewind back a bit because you, you talked about the, the, the space of the barbershop with uh, – the vibe of it and so i'm from new zealand we've only got five million people but i grew up a, a hip-hop kid I, you know i'm a, a favorite you know i i grew up on you know tupac ice cube uh notorious bag everything in new zealand at that time anyway was definitely influenced from american culture for sure so i grew up with that and then new zealand um the indigenous people of new zealand are the maori tribe which is the cultural sort of indigenous people of of new zealand so i'm i'm part maori which we're very proud of and we've always got this very cultural thing where all of us we're boys and bros and we were always talk shop, whatever, it's fine. I came over to the States, um, been to the States about 20 years or so, and about 10 years ago, um, moved, came to San Francisco, and uh, my brother-in-law, I said, hey, look, I want to, I'd never been to a, um, a black barber shop before, and I said, hey, I want to go to a black barber, and I want to go to a white barber, and he's like, what are you yeah. talking about? I said, well, 
I've never been to either, but I just want to. I, I want to. I want to go to both. All right. So anyway, I go to go go to the the, the white barber shop down in Walnut Creek is a fancy nice area, and I roll through, and it's you know there's the the Wall Street Journal there, and everyone's kind of you know doing their thing, and it was it was a it was a vibe. It was very, um, it was a very uh, intellectually calm, curated space. Right. Got it. And then he took me to the um, uh, Black Barber, which is down the street in, in Concord. And uh, I roll up. I just walk, sit down. I start talking talking shop to the next person. And then my brother-in-law is sitting next to me. And he's just dead quiet. And he's, you know, th- he was a 30, 35-year-old, um, like, white dude at the time in the corner, totally quiet. And I'm here from half around the world just talking shop with him. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. We're talking about football, whatever it may be. And something clicked to me, which I'd never clicked on. I, as a foreigner from half around the world, felt more comfortable in the black barber shop, just talking shop as humans to another human, right, right. than my brother-in-law, who was yeah. white, that lived in America, was sitting next to the same people. And I was like, how, am, how is this your home, but you're not home? And I'm not home, right. but I'm home. And right. it brought something really interesting, I thought about, of, the, of what you said about um, how they set up the, the culture within it. In a nutshell, so in New Zealand, mental health is, is starting to become a very big issue around... Um, around the headspace of, of everything, right? And the barbershop for where I go to back home anyway, it's always a safe space to talk about anything. Absolutely. And it feels like it's def- definitely very much the same thing it is in the States. How important do you feel that the, the safe space of barbershop actually is for tough men to talk about hard things? Because I think that's really, really important, which I, I hadn't actually thought about too much until, especially recently, thinking about lockdown and mental health and stuff as well. So talk, talk me through that just for a second, because I'd be really interested in your, in your, um, in your thoughts. Yeah, well, um, tough men do talk about hard things in a barbershop, but they also talk about other things too, Robert, if you know what I mean, <laughs> inside of the barbershop. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, in a nutshell, um, so inside of the barbershop, basically, you know, it's kind of like a safe haven. And, and it's funny that you you asked that question because I was just talking to a uh, staff and I was talking to my students again, you know, going back to that word posture. Right. So when people feel like they're safe and they can trust the environment and they can trust, you know, you as their barber stylist and all of that, you know, they're more more prone to, you know, kind of open it up. Like the, the shop is where you talk about everything. It's like you talk about your problems with with your wife or your girlfriend or, you know, your kids or, hey, man, work is difficult or, you know, you might not have no no money for a haircut that week. But, you know, if you were me, I'm like, man, come on, you've been, you sh- you've been shopping with me for years, man. You better come get your haircut on a house, you know. So the barbershop basically definitely is a safe haven. And it's a place where people can just kind of let their hair down and just kind of like hang out in the shop. You know what I'm saying? Um, You got some shops to have. I mean, I don't. I don't like it. I don't suggest it. But, you know, you got some shops that have pool tables. You have some shops that, you know, they have a little something, you know, a little wine for people to sip on and things like that. You know, more high echelon shops, so to speak. So, you know, it's to each his own. But I definitely think that it's a safe haven and a place where, you know, people kind of gather around and just, hey, lay everything out on the table and and just go for broke. Have you noticed in 30 years in the barbershop that the conversations of what's been discussed let's say especially for 2020 with lockdown with politics with riots with with race with culture with community with recession with everything how has the tone of tougher conversations actually changed 
in the barbershop over time and in your experience from what you've seen? Is there a tone and shift with with the energy of where people's energy and attention and intentions actually going? Well, you know, I, I think I think the energy the energy goes both ways, Robert, um, because of the fact that in most cases you really don't have. How can I say this? So with me growing up, I grew up, you know, well, yeah, I almost I almost said I grew up in the suburbs, but I claim the city because I don't like the suburbs. Let's get that straight for all of the listeners. Right. I'm a city boy. But my parents had the lame brain idea for building a house out in the suburbs. So I had no other choice as a kid to follow them and whatever, you know. So but nevertheless, I was in the suburbs where there was a mixture of races. Right. You had Asian people that used to be in my basement getting their hair cut. You had Caucasian people that used to be in their, my basement getting their hair cut. You had Hispanics that used to be in my basement getting their hair cut. So I dealt with diversity. And then when I opened up my shop, the same thing I had teachers who came who were caucasian because i had the first black barbershop in mattson when i was 19. you had everybody from all different you know uh ethnicities if you will that came and got a service inside of my barbershop but in most cases especially like in a city you know you you have black with black you have white mostly with white because you're an african-american 10 times out of 10 is probably not going to let a Caucasian cut their hair, you know, um, you know, not being, you know, biased, but I'm not going to do it. I cut my own hair. So I, I you know, hooked this since I've been 13. Um, the Arabics are really good in, um, in cutting hair. I have some Arabic friends who, you know, they're diverse. So they cut a lot of African-American and different, you know, nationalities. And then you have the, the Hispanic guys who they're very good as well. So they cut, you know, a lot of, different nationality. So the energy, it really depends because if you have, you know, uh, I don't want to say no names, if you will, because we know what's going on, you know, in the world right now with a certain person who number is 45, if we had to put it on their Jersey robot, <laughs> a certain person. So if you were in a shop of that dynamic, you know, they would probably be with one accord, right? On the same page. But then if you come in a african-american shop so to speak that was predominantly if not all black then you know we're gonna have a certain energy level because we're gonna be like yeah man he need to get out of there because you know it is that and the other so you know but the energy basically I, I think we all feel the same in that respect as it relates to everything that's going on in the world like people don't understand um like all of the looting and you know and all of those basically you know if you don't have anything to lose then what will people care about looting? And I think at the end of the day, if I may talk about that, at the end of the day, it's kind of one of the things where, uh, you know, they say, you know, you're tearing up your own communities. But, you know, in retrospect, the reality robot of it is, is that we don't own most of the businesses in our communities. We probably only own two or three percent of the businesses in our community. And that really only, you know, re revolve around the barbershops, uh, the churches, the storefront churches in most cases, and maybe a couple restaurants here and there. But other than that, we don't own the gas stations. We don't own the, the, the top end stores and stuff like that. So what is kind of like the I think the attitude is, is what do we care about tearing up something that we really don't own and not that's not ours? But then we have to go outside of our community to go to those same stores that we tore up because we tore up the stores in our community and the seniors can't get to them. So, you know, it's not right. 
Um, but it's kind of like you 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 kind of understand it. You know, I, I wouldn't condone it, but you you kind of understand why people do it because it's like you're upset. It's like we do what we're supposed to do. We do what what you asked us to do. We go to work every day. We work. But then you don't even want us to do that legitimately. You know, you don't want to give us what we've earned. So people don't really care. Mm. You know, so that's kind of really the energy right now. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I was doing a little bit of digging on how um, the the banks would essentially section off areas with where they wouldn't wouldn't give loans to, which is was purely race driven, which changed the whole commercial property structure around who could and couldn't get into businesses, and then the equity would build in those things to help them get cash flow to start their own businesses, and it kind of snowballed into um, basically non-white, uh, non-black ownership of all the bricks and mortar of all the yes, residential, sir. all the houses. And, and it kind of weirdly enough, um, you know, currency was used as a, a as a tool against race. Um, and, you I'm know, every to- country's got their own, every country's got their own stuff, you know, like by, by no means, you know, New Zealand is a small country, but we've, we've had, um, you know, everyone's had their own, their own things, but I wanted to maybe just jump on that for a quick set. Cause as a, you know, as an outsider coming in, I look at the ecosystem and, I see the power and the shift. When you think about, you know, you've got a change in leadership coming up, you've got a change in the dynamics of the energy where, you know, it feels a lot more open that people are, um, people in positions that have platforms are really embracing the power that they truly have, whether it be LeBron and the NBA with the, the power of, you know, uh, helping making the owners open up their stadium, their stadiums for people to vote. And whether there's, um, you know, the, all the different, it feels like there's a movement towards acknowledgement around the power of politics and the power of culture and community. When you look at the, um, you know, I guess president number 46 that, that is coming rolling through, how do you see the shift of energy changing in those communities when they think about the future now with a different president? Do you feel, how do they feel about what's around the corner when it comes to politics in their community over the next, um, of this, this next term? Where's the tone? Well, well, what, what I would say, um, Robert, is, is the fact that um, regardless to, who, to who's in office, I believe that we have to work together as a community to help one another. Because at the end of the day, you know, most of us will never, ever see the president and a vice president and so on and so forth. You know, I mean, I met President Obama before and I was in his presence before. But the uh, fact of the matter is, boom. I feel like it's set from those of us in the community, kind of going back to what I said earlier about, you know, everything that I'm doing, I'm not doing it for me, me, me. I'm doing it for us. I'm doing it so that way we can we can we should be able to help one another and create avenues for one another. And I think that if we have that mindset, then I think that we are so much better off. So, yeah, you know, having a different president in, you know, who's not talking out the side of his neck and, you know, talking a whole bunch of dumb, stupid stuff. Excuse me for saying that, but it's the truth. You know, it's more somebody who who's who's talking more sound, you know, because in, in, in politics, it's kind of like, you know, if you do this, you're going to get paid. And if you do this, you're going to get paid. But it takes somebody who decides pretty much which one of the best should you do in order to get paid? Like what's more sensible? You know, what makes more sense? And you have to think about the people. You know, why would you want to get rid of health care for people to be able to go to the hospital. You know, why would you want to not give stimulus for people who are losing their jobs or businesses who are losing their businesses or suffering? Why wouldn't you want to do that? So it's pretty much like elementary. So I think that 
everyone ex is excited because we all went out and, and, and voted like never before, you know, like the, the most votes ever in history. But now, OK, what do we do together as a community? Are we going to be like crawfish in a barrel or are we going to get together and finally start realizing and working together? Because I think that this election really exposed a lot of people as it relates to how people feel about, you know, what's going on in the world from the evangelicals to, you know, different people. It's like, man. So, you know, if, if we're talking about black lives matter, you know, of course, all lives matter. Of course. Come on now. You know, all lives matters. But in certain situations, we're only stipulating the fact that black lives matter because of what's happening to black people. You know, I mean, like, come on, you, you, you can't you you get pulled over by the police and and, and you're afraid to do anything because you don't know what's going to happen because because of the color of your skin, it, it's, it's hurtful. You know, it's not fair. It don't make sense. But it's kind of like the world we're living in. So that's mm -hmm. why it's up to us to come together, you know, and um, and make it happen together as a unit. You, you point, you know, change all of it, but that comes with the, the weight of things, right? You, you are kind of clearly a, you're a magnetic piece that sits in the community in this world that you're, you're building. How do you personally navigate the weight of all of the impact that you're having to all these people, all of the stuff that they've been through, all of the weight and the baggage of the legacy that's gone before them and the stuff that they've done? Just how do you personally balance the weight of your mission versus who you are as a person to stay sane, to keep the engine running because clearly something's bubbling away in your head, the way you roll or think to try and keep it pretty even killed when it's clear that you're doing so much for others. Um, so, you know, I, if, if I could be honest with you, you know, some people, so, you know, Robert, I don't have the story about, you know, drinking and getting drunk because I've never drank. I don't have the story about, you know, smoking a blunt, smoking some weed, because I've never done it. You know, I've never used drugs. I've never did anything that, um, you know, and not, not passing judgment on anybody else, but I've never did anything that could possibly interrupt my peace or cause me to take a bunch of steps backwards, if you will. So with that being said, you know, um, I keep God the head of my life, you know, so basically God is first. Um, I, I try and have the stipulations of uh, just some structure about my my, my day to day, you know, course i pray every day um and i'm not all deep in all of that kind of stuff but i believe that if we can put a lot of energy into everything else we do on everyday basis you know we can take some time out you know to thank god for another day you know i read me a few scriptures before our day start just to kind of you know feed positivity into me and, and 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 my my mission is my affirmation every day when i leave the house is you know god you know bless me and my family so that we may be a blessings to others you know um and, and I say, hey, today is going to be the greatest day ever, you know, no matter what. Sometimes it end up being a very, very bad day. But I say today is going to be the greatest day ever. And um, and I just know that as long as I keep doing what I know that I'm supposed to do, I feel like God will do the rest. You know, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I wrote a book called Suicide is Not the Answer. And in my book, Suicide is Not the Answer, I pretty much expel my life in that book. You know, um, I've been married three times. Uh, I got molested when I was a baby. I at some point, I didn't want to live anymore. You know, I, I dealt with suicide, you know, thinking that, hey, you know, my world is topsy turvy. My world is upside down. And and, you, and and when that came out, people couldn't understand it because I never, you know, I wore it well, so to speak. You know, I mean, I fulfilled my obligations. I was always dressed up nice and smelled good and, you know, drove a nice car, had my business I went to. You know, I was in church all the time and I fulfilled my obligations and everybody else was satisfied. Everybody was taken care of. But then when it came to me, you know, I would go home at nighttime and I'll be balled up in the 
and a ball like a baby, you know, in depression, in darkness, you know, and people didn't understand it. But what I figured out is, is that, you know, when I would call people and reach out for help, you know, people didn't think that I needed help because of, of my presentation, because I wore it well. Right. So what I what ended up happening is I realized that I was pretty much just hurting and it was a cry for help. So I was able to write my book in order to help somebody else who may you know, be crying for help to say, hey, this is how you this is how you get it together. So, you know, nevertheless, with that being said, and, and, and I turned to women, you know, women was my thing. That was my. So, you know, when some people try and say, hey, man, you're an alcoholic and you're a drug addict. Well, being an alcoholic and a drug addict is no different than being a womanizer or, you know, sex being your thing to go to, so to speak. You know, so that was kind of like my vice, if you will. That was my that was my woosah. That was my OK. I feel better now. But at the end of the day, your issues and your problems were still there. So as it relates to just kind of carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders, sometimes I feel like, you know, that's one of the reasons that I developed that up in hopes of, you know, try, because, you know, money. They, they say the love of money is the root of all evil. So I don't love money like that, but I know money answers, you know, it, it, it answers a lot of questions and it solves a lot of problems, so to speak. So I feel like money in the right hands with instruction, as I talked about earlier, you know, it would be put to good use. And and with me, if I can just raise the money and get the money that I need in order to be able to continue to build my team, because I've made sacrifices to build teams to get me to this point. But if I had the resources and the finances, oh, my God, like it would be amazing. Like I'm working on, you know, and this is probably later on down the line, but I'm working on opening up my own credit union right now. So, you know, to have my own bank and I have my own financial center and my resources to be able to then, you know, offer that to other people in my industry and outside the industry to be able to loan the money and give them money and all of that stuff. So um, so it, it's, it's cool. You know, it was tough for a moment, but but it's, it's starting to kind of pan out now where you know, the weight is not so strenuous because I have a team and I have people to help me. It's such an interesting one because not a single person that I've ever talked to that's um, done anything significant has been able to do it without having that escapism or that balance piece, whether it be going on walks or yoga or partying or exercise or whatever it may be. There's always a... Um, there's always that a balance component in their life, and and some of them are for good, some of them are, some of them are, are for bad. I was gonna just jump in on the point there. You know, if you haven't, um, you know, done drugs or any of that stuff before either, when you're in like so for myself, like I've never smoked a cigarette, and I've never um, never done any drugs, but I, you know, I collect whiskey and I, I I don't party, go crazy. But when you are in the jail environment, I can guarantee you're probably not even seen as a them sort of on your own sort of program is that kind of right like do they how do how does the energy of those say in cook county relate to you they do they see you as a, a threat or a help because i'm imagining you're probably seen as a mini savior if anything because they genuinely know you're there, you're there to help how are you perceived from those who are trying to help well they actually called me santa claus at the jail and i found that out a couple <laughs> years ago i'm like I said, why do y'all call me Santa Claus? They said, man, because you get us whatever we need, man. I'm like, wow, you know. But with that being said, uh, you know, they so I do have a balance. So I may be a church boy, but uh, but I ain't no punk neither, if you will, Robert. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I got a I got I got a street balance, you know what I'm saying? Like I got, you know, I got I got friends who are, you know what I'm saying? I ain't no punk. I used to fight a lot too. So people took my meekness uh, and weakness and 
I used to fight a whole lot, you know. So they don't view me. I'm sure as you know like some people as well. If you if you Absolutely. if you're hanging in Cook County, I'm sure you know some people. I'm sure you, you've got a few people on Absolutely. speed, speed dial. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So so they don't consider me, you know, if you will, I'll use the word. They don't consider me no mark, if you will. We say mark, you know what I'm saying? They don't consider me that. Um, and they they feel like I'm I'm there really trying to help them, you know, and, and I show it. You know, I don't I mean I, I don't I don't hold back and what's good for me. I feel like it's good for them as well. So I don't, you know, I don't take it for granted that that I get to leave up out of there every day that I'm there or I don't take it for granted that, you know, I've had the life that I've had over the years. But I share with them things that that I've had the experience I've had to go through as well. And when I share with them those things, they, they be amazed like, man, you went through that. I'm like, yeah, I went through that, man. So it may not be what you went through, but I went through my own situations and. I had I had to learn not to minimize something that somebody go through because of how strenuous I think mine is, you know, and vice versa. So they they have a lot of respect for me, man. And and I feel I, I feel safe being there like they protect me. They cover me, you know, and um and, and I'm not afraid at all. So it, it's, it's a really, really great environment. And it helps me to be more thankful and grateful as well. And it makes me work harder toward, you know, helping to be a part of the alternative. Mm. I was going to, you know, you're talking about before, you know, you talk through your stories and they talk through theirs. And if it's a safe haven that's seen and they can see someone on the outside that's still gone through their own struggles and thing, it probably just gives them a perspective of everyone goes through their own stuff. Everyone has their own balance, their own challenges and stuff. I was going to ask, what did you learn? The, what have you learned the most about yourself after being married for three times? Um, what I've learned, learned is right? Yeah. So, so if, if I may, so coming up in church, one of the things in church is, is that they feel like you should, you know, for lack of a better explanation, you should marry the person you kind of grew up with. Right. So, you know, wh whether or not, you know, like they, they, they were big on being equally yoked. So if you're equally yoked, it means that, you know, if, if, if you play hopscotch, I know how to play hopscotch. If you sing and I sing, you know, oh my God, we were meant to be together. That that doesn't mean that, you know, what I'm saying so me being married, the times that I've been married is not because, you know, I was because I had a great example. My father, my grandfather, you know, I, I mean, I know how to be a husband. I'm a great man. I'm responsible. I'm you know, I, I take care of my family. So that's not it. But it was just that, you know, I kind of chose the wrong people to marry. And one thing I say now is, is that it takes a strong woman to understand where God is taking me. You know, so I had to make sure that I married somebody who, you know, uh, we're on the same page and, you know, and we have kind of you we almost kind of like mine. We, we're indifferent, but we're still like minded, so to speak. And I had to learn that. And then a lot of people don't go to marriage counseling, you know, go to marriage counseling, go make sure that that you and that person are, you know, somewhat, you know, uh, along the same, you know, ramifications, because otherwise, you know, you marry that woman who she got a nice body and she pretty and she look good. But the inside could be screwed up, you know. So I'm friends with everybody, you know, who I was married to. But I just learned. So it's been a long, you know, a long stretch, you know, as far as, you know, when I got divorced last up until this point. But, you know, I've been able to just kind of get me together and make sure that I'm solid, you know, before because hurt people hurt people. Honestly, you know what I'm saying? And we don't we don't have the room to receive, if you will. Mm -hmm. Then you end up kind of getting with somebody and not really being able to give your all or just kind of, you know, let it all go because mm -hmm. you're, you're shunning something or you are you're afraid, you know, about something. So I just pretty much had to deal with all of those things, you know, deal with the baggage. So, you know. Do you feel that you're this? I, I asked because I've got a, a friend who's been married. He's 54. 
four now, I believe, and he's been married for, he just hit 30 years. And I was asking him, hey, you know, like, do you feel that you're the same or how do you feel as a, as you've evolved? And he goes, oh, my wife said that she's now been, she's, she's now on, uh, been married to the guy number three. So she thinks that he's she he's changed three times. There's the early <laughs> young corporate guy. I'm going to go kill everything and be the man and floss out with my you know and my rah rah shit. And then I've hit my 30s with uh, being a kid and I try to uh, reset a little bit. And now coming into the the 40s and, and now 50s of of being content with who I am and kind of three different evolutions of of him as a human. If you were to look at the same thing for yourself, do you think you've been the same person that's evolved three times or three different people? Um, I think that I've evolved three different times, you know what I'm saying? Not three different people because I've never changed. I've always been the same. You know, I made necessary no adjustments. Huh, right, exactly. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I've made the necessary adjustments in my life. But um, as far as uh, turning into a different person, no, not a different person because I've always had the same morals and values. You know, I've always been a full person. Um, all, you know, same work, work ethics, you know, my same belief in, you know, God and just kind of like my life, you know, um, you know, so basically I would say just the, the evolution of, of me, you know, not, not the person, so to speak, is what changed. So we're two from here. You're obviously, you don't sleep much. I'm imagining you probably have your phone next to your bed and you write down all sorts of ideas at all times a day and text messages. They were like, Hey, yo, we should do this thing. Oh man. Like I, I definitely... I'm one of those. Um, when you think about this, this, this next phase of where you're heading in the next, uh, next 12 months, what are you the, what are you the most excited about in the next 12 months for, um, for yourself? Um, what I'm most excited about Robert is the fact that everything that I've tried to, I will say this 20 being in business for 28 years now. Uh, I think this 28th year during COVID is, is the, the most time and the most maximizing that I've done. You know, I call uh, what you call hitting the reset button. So I've hit the reset button really hard and, you know, I've maximized, you know, uh, where, where I'm going. I had opportunity when everybody had to sit down and take a break. I was able to just kind of think, think, think. And um, man, over the next 12 months, you know, I believe that you're going to see me on TV on some on some reality show, you know, reality shows that I've, I've done. I believe that. Um, you know, it's some other exciting things that I can't mention right now that that you're going to see, you know, kind of roll out. And when it roll out, man, it's going to be everything that I've prayed for, everything that I've been proactively setting myself up for. And I think it's going to be awesome. I think it's going to be awesome. That's good on you, man. It's a. Uh... It's not often that people that have such a big community heart to give back have a commercial sense to be able to actually marry the two where there's kind of impact and income. Um, a lot of the time it can be some woosah at the bottom for the community, but without actual commercial now to understand how the dollars are going to make sense for that to create it. But it's clear you're building, it, building an ecosystem for it that makes sense um, with impact. And I think what you will find over time is the legacy of those that have come through it and that alumni effect of safety and security and a better way out for so many is going to be more of a legacy than um, I think you potentially realize now. So um, I really appreciate your time, uh, Larry. Um, if people want to come to your website, check it out. What the, can they go to? Where can they go? What can they do if, um, if they want okay, to check yeah. out um, who so, you're Yeah, so they can, um, I have an app, a Larry's Barber College app that people can um, download if you like to get information about me, but also um, as you relate to data, if I may, um, if people would like to possibly give donations or, you know, somebody would like to send a grant, you know, I am a 501c3. So datafoundationinc.org, uh, you know, people can text and give. They can text 
or they can go to um, datafoundationinc.org. Um, they can donate on that site and um, and basically kind of see what we do, you know. Um, and I really appreciate you allowing me on your show, um, Robit. Um, definitely was my pleasure. Um, thank you. And, um, you know, I look forward to possibly, you know, uh, being with you again, so to speak. Uh, just let me know. But thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That's uh, awesome, man. It's it's really good seeing people do good stuff. And even just the, the thinking that exists within you, I know can help a whole bunch of other people. And it's always interesting, the perception versus reality of stuff that you, you go through and the things that you, you do and build for others definitely make make um, make um lives better. And, and that's that's pretty awesome. So really appreciate your time, brother. Enjoy the day. You as well. Thank you, sir. Awesome. All right. There we have it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Dash Radio, Dash Talk X. Uh, good day, good vibes, good time. Larry Roberts Jr. from Larry's Barber College. Uh, enjoy the day. Adios. Rebet Live. Dash Radio.